The Science Show on RN, where last week we heard at length from Freya and Philip Mulvey about the land itself being a large contributor to climate change. Here's a sample. Freya, how many people have looked at what you're doing and said 50 to 60% of climate change coming from landscape? That doesn't add up. Have you had arguments? We've had arguments, certainly. But I think overwhelmingly the response has been, it really seems like common sense, that the way that we treat and the presentation of our land affects how we experience heat And as we all know, heat contributes to local and regional climate and thereby climate change and global warming. And you're saying it's an additional effect. In other words, the gases, the CO2, the methane, plus the landscape and other effects. Who knows? Water vapour is also a greenhouse gas. (laughs) Nitrous oxide and so on. Put those all together and what you're saying is take more notice of the landscape. That's right. If we can reduce the amount of bad heat that the landscape is emitting for greenhouse gases and carbon to then capture, there'll be less there available for them. So we say that the state of our land is at the moment having a compounding effect on the way that we currently understand climate change, which is almost exclusively about what carbon and greenhouse gases do with that heat. But there is that first step of the state of our land and landscapes. Freya Mulvey with Father Philip, authors of Groundbreaking. Now, it so happens that presentations asserting that soil, carbon and landscape are far more significant than greenhouse gases have been dismissed by earth scientists such as professors at the University of Melbourne as being orchestrated to minimise the role of fossil fuels, a political construction, in other words. Another place where we are encouraged to exercise critical doubt is in the standoff we broadcast a month ago about the COVID virus origins in Wuhan, wet market versus lab leak. As Dr Ella Finkel reported for us, the version favoured now by scientists is the former, wild animals infected leading to us. But one viral researcher we've got to know well over the past three years is Dr Raina McIntyre, who's more convinced than ever that it's a lab leak, and she stands by her case, outlined in her book, Dark Winter. So the question in this programme is our choice between arguing that doubt or uncertainty is a weakness in science, or as a basis for more lively inquiry. It's all in Tim Palmer's new book, The Primacy of Doubt. He's a Royal Society Research Professor at Oxford. It basically defines science. Uncertainty defines science. If somebody said to you, why isn't astrology science? You know, you go to an astrologer, they make a prediction, you'll meet a tall, dark stranger. Why isn't it science? Well, one reason why you can immediately say it's not science is because you never hear error bars put on the prediction. You will never hear how certain or uncertain they are about the prediction. So it's absolutely fundamental to the scientific method that we're able to at least try to estimate the uncertainty, the reliability of our statements and our predictions. And it's what makes just listening to one expert, if he or she seems too confident about what they're saying, to be perhaps sceptical and say, I wonder if they're glossing over some important uncertainties. Indeed. In fact, the only slight worry I had about that title is doubting something is 
in some ways fashionable, especially if you're criticising a few of the chapters you've got, such as climate science and so on. Yes, but we need more detail. We're not convinced. And the president of the Australian Academy of Science, Professor Jagadish, has said many of these attitudes undermine the science. In other words, if people are continuing with too much doubt, they're never confident to take 95% of what happens to be accepted as knowledge, secure knowledge, then the ground under our feet begins to shake, doesn't it? Well, I think there's another point to make when one starts talking about political hot potatoes like climate change, which is that if one is talking about it from a scientific point of view, you have to try to cast aside, let's say, your political prejudices. You may come at climate change with a sceptical hat on because you don't like the idea of regulation. You don't like the idea of the implied economy that may evolve. Or world government. Or whatever it is, yeah. Or you may think, I want to be free to drive my four-wheeled petrol-driven car. I don't want people to tell me otherwise. So it's important to leave that to one side and say there's an issue here which has a very strong scientific component, which is the question... Are our carbon emissions changing climate in a substantial way and for the worse? Now, that kind of question can be addressed irrespective of one's political viewpoint. So it's very easy to say, oh, well, I'm sceptical, not particularly because of the science, but because I just don't like the idea of of regulation. And that's an important point. When one is assessing how certain or uncertain one is about something, to do it in a completely dispassionate and sort of apolitical way. Now, to the science that you write about so compellingly and why we're here actually having a conversation about it, your beautiful book. Where did the butterfly effect come from and why is it so significant in the start of your book? There are two aspects to that. I'm a physicist with, I suppose you could say, strong mathematical training. And the thing about the butterfly effect from a mathematical point of view is that it leads to a kind of type of geometric mathematics that is just phenomenally beautiful and actually underpins a lot of the major mathematical theorems of the 20th century. I I talk a bit about Gödel's incompleteness theorem and Andrew Wiles's very celebrated proof of Fermat's last theorem. And the type of mathematics that goes into this actually has links back to the what I would call the, the chaotic geometry of the butterfly effect. Just to remind, the butterfly effect suggests that the butterfly outside our window here, overlooking a wonderful part of Balliol College campus, this butterfly might have a tiny effect on the air system in the quad, and that's going to change the climate on the other side of the planet, which seems... Preposterous. Yes. I mean, the butterfly effect was made famous, and I think probably in more than one movie, but one that comes to mind is one, I think, where Gwyneth Paltrow just doesn't catch a tube train in London because the doors were just shutting. And the movie is about the two kind of parallel universes that evolve from her catching the train and not catching the train. And it kind of illustrates, in a way, how a small uncertainty can grow into a large uncertainty. But the thing that I focus on in the book is the fact that sometimes butterflies actually don't matter that much, but sometimes they do. And we see this not only in weather, you know, sometimes weather can be predictable a week or 10 days, two weeks in advance. Sometimes it's actually only predictable a couple of days because the butterflies have flapped. 
But we see that in other systems like the economy. We have financial crashes which somehow come out of the blue. We have epidemics, global pandemics, which somehow come out of the blue. Out of one bat in a market. It, yeah, exactly. But bats are always in markets. So the question is, can you predict when the situation is arising where a single bat or a single butterfly or some kind of dodgy financial transaction can trigger a global meltdown in whatever system? And that's what, in a way, the book's about. It's about trying to understand this kind of idea of intermittent unpredictability. And a couple of names, uh, of course, Ed Lorenz is one of the people you quote who has this idea about geometry, fractals, those wonderful fractals. You've seen them probably on a screen where the little squares grow and grow and grow until this pattern just continues. But there's another person involved in what is often called chaos, and chaos implies that everything's unpredictable and all over the place. But a mutual friend, an Australian actually, Bob May, of this campus in Oxford, now departed. He was one of the most extraordinary, brilliant purveyors of the idea of chaos. So how does chaos fit into it all? By the way, Bob May is somebody I got to know very well when chaos first hit the TV screens back in the early 90s, I think, and he and I appeared on a number of documentaries about chaos. I have to say, I usually had a small cameo role and he had a much bigger explanatory role and I realised his enormous talent for explaining complicated ideas. He was a superstar, an Australian, and he became chief scientist. He became chief scientist, became the president of the Royal Society and he won a lot of important medals. But so what is chaos? I mean, chaos really is the idea that small, uncertain effects characterised by the flap of a butterfly's wings can change the weather. They could potentially cause the Earth to be ejected from the solar system. This is an interesting potential phenomenon I discuss in the book. The idea applies to, I would say, probably most of the phenomena that we look at in the world, from engineering systems, biological systems, economic systems, you know, mathematical systems. But I want to make the point, this is again to stress in the book, that what interests me about this is not this sort of idea that, oh well, chaos makes everything unpredictable. It's not as simple as that. Chaos sometimes makes things very unpredictable very quickly, but equally sometimes the butterflies actually have no effect and you can have predictable behaviour for long periods of time. Economists are very good at predicting the inflation and the GDP when nothing much is happening, and they can do that a year, two years ahead. But when you get into a very unpredictable, chaotic situation, then the predictions break down very, very quickly. And it's trying to understand that. And how can we actually predict when we're entering a very unpredictable, chaotic situation? That's the thing which fascinates me, because this is where the theory and practical science that can affect people's daily lives join up. One of the main chapters, well, more than one chapter, actually, is about climate science, which you mentioned in the beginning. If we're going to make sense of all this enormous information, because climate science is practically every aspect of science you could mention. <laughs> but you've got the science trying to make sense of it, to extract from the data what's going on, and also the question of policy. So how do both fields make sense of that kind of almost chaotic stack of information and manifestation? Yes, that's absolutely right. And what I did in the book, very deliberately, is write two separate chapters, one focusing 
entirely on the science and one focusing on, okay, well, what do we do about it? And what do we do about the science does involve value judgments and you know, socioeconomic judgments and things, which is bringing in extra stuff over and above the science. So in the chapter on the science, I kind of talk about what is the basic greenhouse effect. Why does carbon dioxide make the atmosphere warm? Why is the surface of the Earth warmer, say, than the surface of the Moon? Because they're both the same distance from the Sun, so what's going on there? So I discuss that. And then I discuss what the implications are scientifically if we add extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is what we're doing. And I discuss some of the uncertainties in that. And the uncertainties come from knock-on effects. And the biggest uncertainty is clouds. How are clouds going to respond to our increased emissions of carbon dioxide? So scientifically, you end up with probability distributions for different levels of climate change. Now, in a way, this is no different to your weather forecast app, where you look at, you know, is it going to rain tomorrow? And it'll tell you, OK, there's a 60% chance of rain. So you initially you say, well, God, what am I going to do with 60% chance of rain? This is hopeless. But the point is, consider, for example, you're going to go out for a walk. There's a 60% chance of rain. Do you bring your rainproof gear? If you bring it, you won't get wet. But on the other hand, it weighs something. You have to stick it in a backpack. It's a nuisance. It's going to weigh you down a bit. And if it doesn't rain, you know, you just expended all that extra energy. So you've got a decision to make. And a meteorologist is not going to tell you that. It's your decision. Carrying that extra weight is worth it. and not getting drenched. Climate change is basically no different to that. You have a probability of, you know, a level of climate change that we'd all would say is quite catastrophic. I mean, I use the four degree global warming as, as a level where pretty much everybody would agree that would be pretty damn catastrophic to the world. It would be existential for many people living in the tropics and subtropics. So there's a certain probability that that might happen. It's not definite, it's not zero, it's not 100%, something like that. Question is, is it worth taking action to stop that happening? And the second chapter is about how would you go about even making that decision? And obviously you have to kind of evaluate what the damages would be, what the costs would be of mitigating that, what is the cost of going to a low carbon, zero carbon economy, and is it worth it? And me as a scientist, you know, wearing my Oxford mortarboard or something like that, I would say that's not for me to tell you. I mean, that's for you to judge. If you ask me as Joe Bloggs in the pub on a Friday evening, I would actually say it's a no-brainer. But then I'm adding value judgments, which I don't use when I write my scientific paper. Let me just interrupt and say, look, one clear recommendation you do make in that chapter, the first chapter, is that we should have a CERN-type organisation, you know, the famous accelerator in Switzerland on the border of Italy and uh, the other countries, which cost an awful lot of money, where they discover the Higgs boson and so on, where that accelerator is. You want an outfit like that to give us more information about the physics and maths of climate change. I do feel that very strongly because the physics and the maths is complex. I mean, climate change is simple at one level. If you ask me the question, you know, are our carbon emissions warming the planet? The answer is yes. And I can tell you on the back of an envelope why that is the case. And I tell you why in the book. But if you ask me the question, what does it mean for people living in Sydney or, or Perth or London or San Francisco in terms not only of temperature, but rainfall, storminess, drought, 
you know, all these extra kind of things which are important when one is looking at how to, for example, how to adapt to climate change, then the problem becomes really, really complicated. And my own view is that we're not going to actually really tackle this adequately unless we pool resources internationally and do something like a high energy physicist did in building CERN. But this case would be building an international center for doing ultra, ultra high resolution global climate modeling. I believe that very strongly. And In I, other words, you wouldn't need a gigantic building and a gigantic sets of 100,000 bits of apparatus. We have the time to do something quickly because it's modelling and you just need a place where computers and people could be. Yeah, and in fact, compared with the budget of CERN, it would have cost just a fraction of that. But there's a group of us in the world that are trying to advance this, and we're trying to put it on the COP agendas and things like that. And I hope countries like Australia will ultimately become partners and we'll, we'll get this going. Yeah. But you're implying throughout our conversation that doubt is healthy and we shouldn't be frightened of it. Well, I, it's quite the opposite. If you say something without expressing any doubt or uncertainty, then you should be deeply sceptical about it. Funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, we had a portrait about Sir Jack Eccles, who got an international reputation that everyone laughed at, you know, happily. He is a guy who disproved his own theory. <laughs> well, yes, that's right. One should be sceptical of one's own theories, I suppose, is the answer. Of course, it's very difficult sometimes to do that. But no, I mean, this, as I say, this is one of the defining features of the scientific method that it attempts to tackle, where possible, the nature of uncertainties and try to quantify the nature of uncertainties and essentially treat uncertainty as important a variable as anything else, if you're predicting the but weather. But not a weapon. Science isn't a weapon. Science is a tool to be used for the benefit of humanity. And if we're to use it wisely, you see, that's the point. I mean, if we're talking about, let's say we're talking about climate adaptation, and we just took one climate model and spent billions, maybe trillions of dollars building infrastructure on the basis of that one single model, you could end up completely wasting your money. You'd spend money on building flood defences and things when actually the main risk was from droughts and heat waves. So it's critical if you're spending lots of money to know how confident can you be in these predictions. I mean, in some ways, it's not a desperately surprising thing to say. I'm just making the point that hmm. that is the basis of science. really. And what you describe is a healthy way of doing science. And it's not the kind of despair. I don't know whether you remember that Captain Fitzroy was on Darwin's boat. You know, he was in charge of it. And when he'd finished being in the Navy, he became a weather forecaster. But he found pioneering weather forecasting and doing local predictions. So stressful, he killed himself. Yeah, Fitzroy, one of the great things he did was set up an ability to send weather observations back to a central location via the developing telegraphy technology. And it's knowing the observations is a really important part of weather forecasting. But he didn't have the models. He couldn't ingest these observations into computer models. He would try to guess almost, given the observations, what the weather was going to be. So he got it half right. And he did do important, very important pioneering work. But because he didn't have the models, the forecast was sometimes good, sometimes bad. And when they went bad, he was pilloried by the press and by his colleagues and even in, by MPs in Parliament. And that eventually got to him. But, you know, he's remembered now, I think, as actually somebody that really did pioneer an important part of weather prediction, which is the 
ability to synthesize observations from different parts of the country into a single holistic central part. We have a mutual friend who says uh, he was a great scientist, greater than many. My final question to you, going right back to the beginning, is when you had an amazing insight, I think you weren't far off having finished your PhD, and you were thinking about Einstein, you were thinking about ways in which he is poo-pooing some of the quantum stuff and saying it's a bit too random and weird and magical in the pejorative sense. But what insight did you have and what difference did it make that day? Yes, well, I actually started my research career studying cosmology and Einstein's theory of general relativity and this continuing problem of how to marry Einstein's theory of relativity with Schrodinger and Heisenberg's quantum mechanics. And I sort of thought I'd left that behind. I just sort of made a, it was a difficult decision to change fields into climate type work, but I I kind of thought I'd made that decision. But having discovered this geometry of chaos that I talked about, the fractal geometry that that you mentioned, it made me realize that here was a kind of mathematical structure that could, despite what most conventional quantum scientists would say, here is a way to actually incorporate Einstein's ideas about determinism and locality. So determinism means God does not play dice, God does not sort of introduce randomness into the world, contradicting the idea of spooky, what he calls spooky action at a distance. In other words, something I do here, if I wave my hands here, it shouldn't affect instantaneously something going on in darkest corners of the Andromeda galaxy. Entanglement. Entanglement, yes, that's right. So the realisation was that fractal geometry actually provides a way of going back to what Einstein said and realising that actually there is a way to understand quantum mechanics within the sort of deterministic local framework that Einstein believed was the case. I personally believe Einstein was right, and I'm willing to say on the record that I think in 20 or 30 years he'll be acknowledged as being right. But at the moment, that's not the way most quantum physicists look at it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Tim Palmer, who's a Royal Society professor at Oxford, and his book is The Primacy of Doubt. And as they say these days, in answer to the two conundra about COVID and climate, don't weaponize your doubts. If you're worried about flood or fire, you insure your house. And yes, It's expensive to do so, but many aspects of life are uncertain. So we deal with them, take precautions. We don't pillory the scientific messenger.